thanks for joining tonight, everybody. As usual, good to see you all. And uh, I don't have any announcements. So as usual, without further ado, we'll get right into Robert's lesson. Right. Hello, everyone. Uh, I, I'm going to play the audio first, and then we will discuss it. Then Jesus spoke out again. I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees objected, You testify about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Jesus answered, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you people do not know where I came from or where I am going. You people judge by outward appearances. I do not judge anyone. But... If I judge, my evaluation is accurate, because I am not alone when I judge, but I and the Father who sent me do so together. It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I testify about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they began asking him, Who is your father? Jesus answered, You do not know either me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father too. Jesus spoke these words near the offering box while he was teaching in the temple courts. No one seized him because his time had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will look for me, but will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jewish leaders began to say, Perhaps he is going to kill himself, because he says where I am going, you can't come. Jesus replied, You people are from below. I am from above. You people are from this world. I am not from this world. Thus I told you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus replied, What I have told you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the Father who sent me is truthful, and the things I have heard from him I speak to the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his Father. Then Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak just what the Father taught me, and the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do those things that please Him. While He was saying these things, many people believed in Him. Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed in Him, If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slaves. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be really free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I am telling you the things I have seen while with the Father. As for you, practice the things you have heard from the Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus replied, If you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You people are doing the deeds of your father. Then the Judeans responded, Now we know you're possessed by a demon. Both Abraham and the prophets died, and yet you say if anyone obeys my teaching he will never experience death? You aren't greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died too. Who do you claim to be? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. The one who glorifies me is my father, 
about whom you people say he is our God, yet you do not know him. But I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his teaching. Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Judeans replied, You are not yet fifty years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. Then they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and went out from the temple area. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. Then Jesus... There we go. That was so good. My friend who's reading this stuff, he's really getting into it. I love it. Um, well... Uh, let me begin by apologizing real quick. I did not finish the blog post this week. I did most of it, but the last bit, I just didn't have a chance to write it. I am uh, traveling for work and all that, but also I had a little bit of a of a personal tragedy uh, happen this week. And so, um, you know, I'm going to try to always keep up with the blog. This week was just a little bit of a, you know, uh, of a rough time. So, but without further ado... Let's get into the text. One of the first themes that we see in this chapter is this idea of being the light of the world. Now, uh, we have already encountered this kind of language, right? At the very beginning in chapter one, uh, Jesus says, or sorry, the Bible says about Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Right, so John has used this imagery before, we're familiar with it. And quite frankly, this idea of light versus dark is not only a Jewish idea, this was common in the Greek world and it's common today. Right? You can think of Star Wars or you know, whatever. It, it's something that makes sense to just about everyone innately. Now, this imagery though has some connections to the Old Testament, which are very important, particularly for this chapter. So I do want to bring this up. Uh, this would come out of Isaiah chapter 42, and we really could connect it also to another chapter in Isaiah, but particularly this. So I'm going to read a few verses out of Isaiah 42, 5 through 7. This is what the true God, the Lord, says, the one who created the sky and stretched it out, the one who fashioned the earth and everything that lives on it the one who gives breath to the people on it and life to those who live on it. I, the Lord, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand and protect you and make you a covenant mediator for people and a light to the nations. To open blind eyes, to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. Um, sorry, that's where that one is. Also, uh, those who live in darkness from prisons. That's where that ends. And then Isaiah 49 says the following. So now the Lord says, the one who formed me from birth to be his servant, he did this to restore Jacob to himself so that Israel might be gathered to him. And I will be honored in the Lord's sight for my God is my source of strength. He says, is it too insignificant a task for you to be my servant, to reestablish the tribes of Jacob and restore the remnant of Israel? I will make you a light to the nations so you can bring my deliverance to the remote regions of the earth. Okay, so in both verses, or in both chapters, you see this idea of a light to the nations. Um, so when Jesus claims to be the light, he is 
almost certainly making a connection to these prophecies, right? And, and the Jews, whenever they spoke of the light, they were probably thinking of either wisdom or Torah. But Jesus is both greater, uh, a greater light since he is the light itself, but he also has a greater extent, a greater reach, right? His light, um, unlike Torah that was only given to the Jews, at least that's how the Jews would have thought of it, uh, the light of Jesus is going out to the entire world, to all the nations. He's not just going to reestablish uh, Jacob, the tribes of Jacob, right? He will go out to the nations. So that that's very important. Also, remember that this whole debate is going on during the Feast of Tabernacles. We discussed that already two weeks ago, I guess. And during that feast, there was a torchlight ceremony that would commemorate the way that God was present with the Israelites in the Old Testament. And God was present with them by being a pillar of fire. Okay? And there's more to the story. I'm only focusing on what's relevant to this. Um, but this is to say that, that this imagery of light, uh, particularly with this torchlight ceremony, was already being used in this festival. So when Jesus says that he is the light, there would be there would have been an additional connection to God the Father and the way that he guided the Israelites in the Old Testament. And finally on this theme, we have the idea of the light being contrasted with walking in darkness. Now, walking in darkness, of course, works at two levels. One, a very basic literal level, which is not to say that it's incorrect, but just very straightforward, that if we work if we walk in darkness, we can't see where we're going we're much more prone to make a mistake and to trip you know or to go the wrong way but there is also a more symbolic understanding of this phrase even at the time the jews were already speaking of walking in darkness as somebody who is living in sin so it walks at both levels i mean it works i apologize at, at both levels with the light that Jesus provides, we can live a good life. We can, we can live a wiser life, a better life. But also, we can, we can stop living in sin, right? We will not die in our sins like we will learn here in just a few minutes. Um, so that, that is one of the main themes, like I said. And it, and it, it recurs in the Gospel of John. But when Jesus says this, he gets this response. You testify about yourself. You know, what is that any good? Well, to understand this rebuttal, and I think we've discussed this before, but, but we need to understand two things. One, it was dishonorable for someone to praise himself at the time in the culture, both actually in the Jewish world and in the Greek world. Somebody else ought to praise you and this is familiar to us, right? Uh, we, none of us want to brag about ourselves. Uh, normally say if you're going to go give a speech somewhere, like let's say you're a famous person and you're going to a university to speak, somebody else will introduce you. It would be rather odd if you went up to the podium and you're like, I am such and such, I am great because I wrote these books and I'm so smart and that's why you should listen to me. No, we don't do it now. They didn't do it then. But also, um, we have this idea that to settle important legal matters, you needed at least two or three witnesses. 
This comes straight out of the Torah. And we actually already read those verses a few weeks ago, so I didn't put them back on the blog. Uh, but you can go back and, and find them rather easily. So there's there's kind of a twofold charge. First of all, don't praise yourself. That's dishonorable. And number two, if you want this to believe you, you're going to need more than one witness. right? You need two or three witnesses. And that's actually how it's phrased. By the way, it is two or three. So they, they don't like specify how many exactly you need. Uh, at any rate. Jesus responds in a way that, that he makes two points. One, the way that I know things is different from the way that you guys know things. And I'm, I'm, of course, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, because he says, I know where I am from and I know where I am going. In other words, I am from heaven, I am divine. And so my testimony is more valuable than the testimony of just one average guy so yes i can absolutely just testify about myself but fine if you want me to play by your rules i will do that i do have a second witness and that would be god and we again we have discussed this in the past i know that i'm beginning to kind of repeat myself here week after week but how is god testifying to jesus well through the miracles right through the signs and, and it's always important to keep that in mind, that that's, that's the main purpose, perhaps not the only, but the main purpose of the miracles is God testifying to who Jesus is and therefore to what he says. You know, that what Jesus is teaching is in fact true. Well, the Jews then respond, who is your father? This is a little bit hard to interpret. Um, not, not that this really matters a whole lot, but it could be taken two ways. On one hand, it could be that the Jews are saying, you speak of this father of yours, who is your witness, then produce him. Right. So this question, who is your father? It, it could be paraphrased, paraphrased as, okay, present your father, your father, you know, like bring him to the stand. Let's hear from him. Um, or it could be an actual statement of confusion. But Jesus makes it clear throughout this discussion that it is a willing confusion, right? That it is a confusion that comes because they refuse to believe. Uh, and because they refuse to believe, then they cannot understand. The next section in, in the discussion, at least the way that I've organized it, I'm sure that, you know, if you, if you pick up a commentary, they might organize it slightly differently. But... Uh, Jesus tells them, I am going away um, where you cannot follow and you will die in your sins. It is a very kind of uh, powerful accusation. And this is building right at the end of the chapter. It, it just ends in this climactic moment where he says, I am, which we will discuss in a minute. I won't spoil it, but but you can feel the temperature rising, right? So Jesus said, I'm going to go somewhere where you cannot follow. Now, Jesus, he is going to die soon. We know that, of course. And eventually, so will all his opponents. And they will not go to the same place. Now, this may seem rather obvious, but I think it's important to at least point it out 
that this is the obvious and clear implication of what Jesus is saying, because, um, you know, because of ideas like universalism and, and, and so forth. Uh, here, there's a clear statement that you guys and I, if I were speaking like Jesus, are not going to the same place. Jesus is going to the Father. They clearly are not. Now, notice that the requirement to not die in one's sins is actually very simple. It is to believe, right? And we have seen this throughout the Gospel of John, that the, the main distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not is those who believe and those who do not. Very, very clear. Now, Jesus here uses an expression that he will use again. He said in this very chapter, he says, you must believe that I am he. Now, the word he is actually implied in the Greek. Greek is a lot like Spanish, where you can modify words to specify who is speaking. And of course, the tense of the verb and even a few other characteristics. This is not as common in English. Normally in English, you use a separate word to specify who's doing the talking or who's receiving the action and so forth. Um, but like I said, in, in Greek, this, this idea of he is, at, is, is embedded in the verb. Well, but when Jesus says, you must believe that I am, parentheses, he, this sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 43. And... Uh, and I'll explain what that matters. But you might be thinking, no, Robert, you're reading too much into this. Well, if I am, uh, Jesus then in verse 858, so at the very end of the chapter, makes it abundantly clear that he's referencing this passage. So perhaps he's not yet, but he will in a few verses. But I really do think that it works. Well, Isaiah 43 says the following. This is 4310. You are my witness, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may consider and believe in me, and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and none will outlive me. Right? Uh, and if you guys remember, what is God's name in the Old Testament? I am. Right? Now, what's tricky about the phrase, I am, I think in Greek is ego, I, me. But you might double check me on that. It's been a little bit since I looked it up. Um, is that the, the, the phrase I am can be used in normal language. Like I am the king. I am, you know, the bank teller, whatever. Uh, so when it's used with something else like that, it, we say that it has a predicate. And it's clear that then the person speaking is not using the phrase I am whatever, you know, insert the fill in the blank um, in a theophanic way, in a way to refer to God. Uh, they're just using it in normal language. Now, when the person just says, I am without a predicate, it could be that they're still not using it in a way that refers to God. They're just responding to a question or a statement that makes clear what the predicate would have been. Like, let's say that you asked me, hey, are you Robert? I, I could respond, I am. Now, clearly, I'm not, again, I'm not using the phrase I am there to say that I'm God. No, I'm just responding to your question. Where this phrase becomes very powerful, where it really refers to God, is when it neither has 
the predicate, so it's being used in, in its absolute form. And in the context of the conversation, there is no predicate, right? So in later, like I said, in 858, that's what we're going to run into, where Jesus says, I am, in a way that has no predicate, and there is no predicate in the context. Uh, so very clearly, I think he is calling himself God, and his opponents certainly understand it that way. Um, when when he's telling the Jews to believe in him, to believe that I am he, again, I think he's doing the same thing, but you are, you're free to disagree. Well, another little aspect I wanted to explain is this idea of being from above or from below. Because Jesus makes this comparison, right? This dichotomy um, between he is from above and his opponents are from below. Now, when you hear from below, particularly when in just a few verses, Jesus is going to call them sons of Satan, you may be thinking that Jesus is saying that they are from hell. And that really is a Hellenistic view of the world. And hopefully everybody understands when I say Hellenistic, I mean Greek, right? That it's a Greek view of the world. Uh, the Jews, they did, not, they did not think of the underworld as being the evil realm, like the Greeks did. But they thought of earth, of our realm, as the realm that is ruled by Satan, right? So above would be heaven and below is earth. Below is not Hades, again, like a Greek would have understood. Um, but uh, not only does Jesus say, I am from heaven, you guys are from earth, but then the conversation gets ever more spicier. And But b before we get to that, there's kind of this, almost like this parenthesis where Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you're going to understand, quote unquote. And perhaps I'm, I'm paraphrasing there a little too much. Literally what he says, let me go find this verse uh, right quick so I don't, I don't do injustice to the scripture. Um, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And notice we find that phrase again, I am He. Um, and I do nothing on my own initiative. Okay, So whenever you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am who I say I am. Right? That would be the I am He. Um, well, this is <laughs> a little bit funny and very provocative in the conversation because this idea of lifting someone up means to exalt them right this this is still true nowadays right if if we said that we're going to lift someone up to this day we still mean that we are going to exalt them perhaps worship them you know depending on the setting uh, there are modern hymns that are still written that way i quote one in the blog in case you're interested um but it certainly was the case back then in fact the exact same word used for lifting up is used in other verses in the Bible to mean exalt. I give an example from Matthew 23, 11 through 12. Um, and I'm not really trying to delve into that passage. I just want to kind of prove my point that the way that Jesus' opponents probably heard what Jesus said was, uh, they probably heard, whenever you exalt me, you know, whenever you worship me, then you will understand who I am. 
mind you, these people are strongly opposed to Jesus. So they're probably thinking, it will be a cold day in hell before I worship you. And there would be some truth to that statement. Um, and so it, it's just dripping with irony, right? And it's, again, it's, Jesus here is being deliberately provocative. Jesus is, is, is kind of poking at them. Uh, I would say at some point he kind of stabs and then twists the knife. Uh, well, but the listeners, right, the, the, or the readers at any rate, the readers of the gospel, we clearly understand what Jesus is saying, right? That he, that or that they will not lift him up in the sense of worship him or exalt him. They're going to lift him up literally on the cross. But that will, in fact, show his divinity, right? Then when he, when he comes back to the living in three days. So, um, I mean, it's just kind of brilliant how John has written uh, the devil and tundras that are all over the place. The irony that is just dripping from the text is really incredible. Well, then um, we get we get this this little side note where Jesus talks to not to his opponents, but to those who are believing in him. Right? The text says some believed in Jesus. And so he turns to them and he says, if you are a true believer, if you're really, if you're really mine, then you will believe to the end. Now, we know that already throughout the Gospel of, of John, we have seen that people believe in Jesus, but it's not like a full-fledged belief and they, they fall away from that and what we might call apostasy. Of course, the greatest example of apostasy has not yet happened because it's going to be Judas. Um, but this idea of persevering in belief is not just found in the Gospel of John. Uh, we see it probably most clearly in a parable that is found uh, in Matthew. And I just thought I would read it because I, I know this is kind of a, a side note in the argument that Jesus is having with his opponents. But it is an important side note that, uh, you know, we at least ought to think about for a minute. Um, I'm going to read the parable uh, right quick, and, and then we can talk about it. This is out of Matthew chapter 13. It says, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. They sprang up quickly because the soil was not deep. But when the sun came up, they were scorched. And because they did not have sufficient root, they withered. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and they grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred times as much, some sixty and some thirty. The one who has ears had better listen. Now, luckily with this parable, we don't have to wonder what it means because Jesus explains it just a few verses later. He says, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed sown on rocky ground is a person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself and does not endure. 
when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. The seed sown among thorns is the person who hears the word, but worldly cares and the seductiveness of wealth choke the word, so it produces nothing. But as for the seed sown on good soil, this is the person who hears the word and understands. He bears fruit, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Right? Think of that kind of middle example where he says, uh, the seed sown on rocky ground is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in, him, in himself and does not endure. That sounds a whole lot, right? Like what Jesus is explaining here. You're receiving my words with joy now, but stick with it or it will do you no good. Uh, I'd love to talk more about that, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the clock and I know that I, that I have to move on. Um, then, then Jesus says, the truth will set you free. Now, I'm sure you have heard that phrase. I wonder, hopefully everybody here already knew that that comes from the Bible. There's many biblical quotes that have become famous in movies and just kind of popular media. This would be one of them. Um, but I, I want to ask, what does this mean? And it's a little bit tough to, to get this from the text because their culture is just so different to ours. But I think if you look at the text carefully, the main thing here being discussed is whether they are children of God or they are enslaved by a different household. And let me explain what I, what I mean by that. Um, I think we have discussed in prior sessions that the children in a family, they, they were entitled to the inheritance, right? They had special rights within the household. A slave, on the other hand, he or she was only a temporary part of the household and had no rights to inherit, no rights to rule, so to speak. Um, and in, in, in this particular passage, they, the, the Jews, they keep saying, Abraham is our father. But Jesus tells them, no, you're a slave to sin. Now, when you hear slave to sin, I think you immediately are thinking of the moral implications of this, right? Like, you guys cannot help but do bad stuff, and Abraham was not doing bad stuff. But I think this is meant in a much more literal way. Like, think of this imagery where sin is a person. Okay, just for a second, imagine sin as a person. The claim being made here is you're not children of the household of Abraham. You are over here somewhere else as a slave in the household of sin. And as a slave in the household of sin, you simply have no rights in the household of Abraham. You are cut off. Now, if you're thinking this sounds awful familiar, it's because we have the exact same idea in the idea, I mean, in, in the parable of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son loses his benefits of being a child, of being a descendant, and he goes off and becomes um, like an indentured servant. I don't know if the parable actually says slave, so I don't want to say that, but a very similar idea. And eventually, right, in that parable, the prodigal son returns and his status as a son is returned to him. Uh, well, it's actually very much the idea that we have here. Now, I'm not trying to eliminate the, 
the like moral component to this of being a slave to sin and what that implies that the you know their very nature is warped and they cannot help but to sin but to stray off the path and do what they should not do that is certainly the case but it is i think much more powerful when you realize the context in which this is being said this context of having the rights the proper rights of a child or having no rights as a slave in someone else's household and again i'll say one more time how do you return to that status of being a son of god or a child of god uh, that would be through belief right now that that is where my blog ends but i'm going to go ahead and discuss the rest of uh, the passage that we read and again i apologize i did not have time to write it in the blog um but uh but I, I am prepared for it i just didn't do that part um well the argument starting in verse 41 or so the argument begins to repeat itself instead of now um jesus saying that they're slaves to sin now jesus says that they are children of satan now talk about uh cranking up the temperature right uh, things are getting very very ugly and they are saying no 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 don't you dare we are children of abraham now of course jesus does not deny their dna right that they do come from the lineage of abraham no one is denying that in this conversation jesus is using more metaphorical language and his opponents keep going back to just literal language so they're kind of talking past each other um but there is a a point that they both understand both parties understand that they're arguing the jews thought that because they were descendants of abraham they were entitled to inherit the kingdom that's just how it worked and if they're not true descendants of abraham you know in a in a deeply meaningful way then they're not entitled to that they're out right they're out of the kingdom and that is the whole point here the whole argument and and jesus says no you you're actually children of the devil uh, and that's actually the word that's used there i shouldn't have said satan i should have said devil because that, that is the word in the text uh, so i apologize for that um but it says you're children of the devil and the argument is pretty simple children and their parents share a nature right children do like the parents do uh, that's an observation that we could make just about you know daily life but we can also use it as a metaphor and so jesus is saying who are you acting like are you acting like abraham no you are out here seeking to murder me and who is you know the author of of murder it is the devil and because you do as the devil does that means you share a nature with the devil that is to say you are children of the devil um, and then of course jesus also brings up the idea of lying you know jesus i mean uh, the devil is a liar and you guys are lying you share that nature with him um a quick side note here uh or matt do you want to announce questions and then i'll do my finishing comments Sure. Uh, as usual, if you have a question you'd like to ask or a point of discussion you'd like to offer, just type question in the chat. Again, just the word question, and that's how I'll identify you. And we'll go in the order that uh, I receive them.
Um, you might be curious why it says that, um, why the devil is associated with murder from the beginning. This is a little bit unclear. We really have two options. Again, not that it matters, not that it changes the meaning of the text, uh, but I always try to think about these details. Um, it could be that the Jews are thinking, well, uh, the devil uh, tricked or tempted Eve, and through that temptation, death was introduced to the world. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that it's referring to Cain and Abel in the first murder in the Bible, well, in history. Um, and at least later, Jewish tradition spoke of Cain as being the son of the devil. It is unclear whether that tradition dated all the way back to Jesus' day. But I don't, you know, again, this is like a little side note. I don't think any of us uh, take issue with Jesus associating the devil with murder and lies. Um, and then with just a couple of minutes I have remaining, I, I kind of want to jump to the to the end of the story. Uh, because they get into this discussion about Abraham and and the Jews say to to Jesus, You're not you're not saying you're greater than Abraham, right? Uh, and, and I know that I'm skipping over a few verses here just for the sake of time, but I have to get to just the kind of the coup de gras uh where all this comes to a head um in and, and i'm just going to read it again and i'll explain it it says then the judeans reply when it says judeans it's the same as jews uh because the jews lived in judea so that that word can be translated as either the judeans or the jews it does not make a difference um then the judeans reply you're not yet 50 years old have you seen abraham okay so uh, they're saying, what do you even know of Abraham? Like, how how can you claim to have met him? How do you how can you claim to know everything you know so much about Abraham? You're not even fifty. Now you might be thinking, why fifty? Wasn't Jesus closer to thirty, which he was? Um, but fifty was normally the age at which uh, somebody would be considered kind of uh, old and and wise. Many uh, public or like governmental positions would normally be withheld from someone until they turned 50. Now, there were some exceptions, but, you know, we do the same today with requiring an age for the presidency and so forth. Well, so they're saying, you're not even an elder yet. Have you, you seen Abraham? And Jesus responds to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. Okay. That is just like the moment, right? That because like I was explaining earlier, I am without a predicate and without, uh, even if there's no predicate right before or after it, if there's no predicate at all in, 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 the, in the context, then it is a clear reference to God, to the name of God in Exodus and like I said, in Isaiah. Uh, so here Jesus very clearly says, I tell you the solemn truth, before Abraham came into existence, I am God, is what he's saying there. And they got it, right? The whole time, they're kind of talking past each other and all this stuff, and there's all this confusion, but not when Jesus says that. The minute Jesus says that, then they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hides and goes away, right? And that's how the scene ends. But it is... I mean, it's quite the ending to that conversation.
with that being said, I can open it up to questions, and depending on the questions, you know, uh, we'll see if I go over other stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Robert. A um, couple of points that I wanted to offer or question for further discussion. Uh, first of all, I did not know that the uh, the saying about the uh, the saying that the truth will set you free was biblical in origin, which uh, should not surprise you because I don't know much about anything that is biblical in origin. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, and then uh, you talked about this double entendre with uh, with th this lifting up meaning. Does it mean to exalt someone? Does it mean to physically lift someone up in this case in the act of crucifixion? You might have mentioned this. Maybe I just didn't pick up on it. But this is this is a line that's delivered by Jesus, correct? Yes. And what does he mean when he says that? Which one of those does he mean or does he actually mean both? You know, he clearly means the the more literal meaning right he means that you're going to lift me up meaning you're going to crucify me and through the crucifixion my divinity will be revealed um but the way they probably heard it again the, the words are the same just but the yeah. meaning they probably took was you are going to exalt me and when you exalt me you will understand who i am and they're probably thinking no way there's, there's zero chance we're doing that do you think that the uh, I know this is like kind of specific and technical, so maybe there's just no way to know. Do you think that second interpretation that is quote unquote incorrect or not necessarily what he means? Do you think that he knows they'll interpret it that way? Yes. Okay. Yes. They Got were, it. So, I think the way the text is written, he is like, you know, he's poking them. He okay. So it's almost like yeah, it's like uh, biblical trolling or something like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. Uh, all right. Uh, that's all that I had. We did have one question from Eric. Eric, I'm not sure if you meant this as a, a question that you wanted to ask yourself or if you want me to ask it for you. But if you have a mic, go ahead and unmute yourself. You're welcome to join. Uh, and Eric is the only one who has uh, signed up to ask a question. Donald Bryan. Um, oh, Eric says he prefers to type. So very brief, very blunt question. Here you go, Robert. Which Christian denomination is right? <laughs> How about that? Um, do you know, that's that's the very question I've been trying to stay away from because ah. I want to make this kind of multi-denominational or yeah. whatever. Uh, of course, I do go to church, so I have picked a denomination, but uh, I, yeah, I don't want to get into that. I, I do think, I, I will say this though, I think that clearly there are some that are more right than others. Uh, oh and we don't have to like go into, I'm just saying, sometimes you look at a certain church or denomination, you go, wow, they're like really out there. Okay, so let's get the definitive ranking one through five. I know there are more, <laughs> but like top five. That way we're oh. not really insulting anybody. Uh, no, I, I, I don't mean to punt or avoid the question, but Eric, t sincerely speaking, um, the approach that, that we've taken, and one of the reasons I appreciate Robert uh, and his approach to this um, is considering a variety of interpretations and allowing those to compete and not necessarily trying to tell anybody what to think necessarily. Um, so that's kind of where I'm, where I am philosophically with my approach to this. And one thing I appreciate about Robert's approach. So not trying to avoid, but I suppose that question is one thing that we're not necessarily trying to, I'm not saying it's an invalid question. Obviously people are entitled to believe what they think the correct uh, interpretation or the correct denomination is. I just don't know that from my perspective, um, 
and the reason I participate in this study that I'm there personally. I mean, I, I'm, I'm here for a very intro level uh, experience with the text rather than like uh, to be plugged into the quote unquote correct set of beliefs. Um, but perhaps I'll get there. And uh, I appreciate it, Eric. Thank you. Uh, Donald, go ahead and uh, chime in if you're ready. There we go. Um, hey, uh, thought about uh, the lifting up and the double entendre. Within the larger text, uh, could, you could also refer back to the passage in Exodus of lifting up the snake. Um, so maybe it's like a two and a half tundra <laughs> in a <laughs> sense. And, you know, maybe in a, in a sense, if, uh, Matt, was it Matt? You just said biblical trolling, which I think that was, that's wow. probably a really, a really apropos thing for what Jesus is doing. But who knows? Maybe he's kind of doing that too. It's like you're lifting up and, okay, you guys are experts in, in the Torah, so certainly you remember that passage and, you know, Moses had to lift up the image of the snake on the pole so that everybody could be um, healed. Um, so think about that when the time comes. But also then looking forward, um, <clears throat> isn't it um, just one of those amazing, uh, what am I looking for? Not contradictions, but um, anyway. I'll just use the word mystery for lack of a more accurate word. Uh, those amazing uh, mysteries of scripture, of the gospel, that I'm going to be exalted when I am at the absolute most devastated, um, ruined in the world's eyes. You know, when he, yeah, <laughs> that's it. I just, just wanted to point that out. I like that. All right. Thanks, Donald. Did you have any thoughts on that, Robert? He's he's very much correct. Uh, you might remember that I think it's chapter three, and forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but in John chapter three, we actually cover that idea of just like the serpent was raised, was raised up, so must the Son of Man be raised up. Um, and we talked about how in the Old Testament, Moses puts a, you know, like a, a a serpent like on a spike or, or something, you know, and, and uh, the, the people have to look at this to be healed. Um, and Jesus says the same way, I must be lifted up. Uh, and so, yeah, Jesus has already actually alluded to this, to this very idea in that very yeah. passage that Donald was talking about. So very much correct. Um, Joshua in the chat had an interesting follow up on the denomination, the correct denomination, uh, denomination question. Um, so Joshua, I don't know if you'd like to ask that yourself or I can come back to that. Uh, let's see, or maybe you guys are just chatting. So l let me get some clarity on, on whether you'd like that question to be brought up, Joshua, or, uh, okay, he's in a noisy environment. If you'd like me to ask it, just let me know in the chat and I'll come back to it. Cause I think it's interesting, but I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, oh, he says, sure. All right. Great live discussion here. Thanks for patience guys. Um, but he said, uh, Okay, so without giving a specific denomination, um, can you describe the framework that you use to pick a denomination or evaluate a denomination? What, what's sort of your value structure there, or your evaluation structure? Okay. So I think, first of all, they must believe 
in the core beliefs of Christianity. Like they have to believe, for example, in the Apostles' Creed. That, and hopefully, I'm not gonna like uh, come on too strong here. But I, I mean, I'm just gonna speak my mind, and you guys can push back on this. But you know, if a church does not believe in the basics like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, then I, I would just that would be a no-go for me um, because I mean that's even from a historical standpoint then they would not be Christian right they would not be upholding the doctrines that Christians have upheld for the last uh, you know 16 or 1700 years if we're including the Nicene Creed so they they have to uphold the basics Jesus is God the Holy Spirit is God the Father is God you know you, you get the Trinity Jesus was born of a virgin um, they must have a high view of Scripture uh, I think that's also kind of a non-negotiable. Now, I, I'm not going to go ahead and say the word inerrant. Uh, maybe they, they would use a different word. They could use the word authoritative. Um, and that's a discussion for another day if anybody wants to have that discussion. But I think as long as it's a very, very high view of Scripture, uh, you're probably in a good place. And um, I don't know. I wasn't really prepared to like give a list of uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, of standards, but I would say those two are are a must. Uh, everything else would be secondary. Like you know, some of their particular uh, secondary doctrines, uh, maybe their historical ties. You know, um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. Was that helpful at all, or? I don't know. I, yeah, I think that's what he was getting at. So uh, thanks for the uh, question, Joshua, because I, I think um, to me, to get at to get at Eric's original question, that's really the meat of it. Uh, you know, if, if we if we sit down and we just say, well, this one's right, this one's wrong. The question is why? And so that's that's uh, a helpful way to get at that question without, uh, you know, just telling some people they're awesome and some others that they suck or something like that. Uh, Anyway, let, let me add a, a personal yeah. note, uh, and this is merely personal. I, um, the older I get, the more I put an emphasis on on tradition in the sense that I, I want the church that uh, views itself essentially as generational and as connected with other churches, and that it really views the, the whole 2,000 years of church history as its own history. Now, not necessarily how the Catholics do it or the Eastern Orthodox, and I don't say that as a criticism, but um, some Protestant churches are very good at bringing in all this legacy, and some Protestant churches are not so good. And personally, I more and more I gravitate towards a church that really looks at that legacy and, and emphasizes it. And th that could be a independent church, like a Baptist church, you know, whatever. Uh, but if they don't do that at all, if they think that, you know, they've reinvented the wheel themselves, well, to me, that's a bit of a warning sign. All right. Uh, thanks again, Joshua. And Mari, if you uh, are ready to go, go ahead and unmute yourself. Sure. Just wanted to make a comment of that. I, when uh, Jesus is talking about, he says, I am, I, I still struggle to kind of understand how powerful that statement was because in our, our culture saying something like that, you know, people just think, Oh yeah, he's just, he's just crazy or he's just a goofball or whatever. But in that culture, people were extremely offended 
by Jesus saying that he was God. And I, and I think that uh, it kind of a struggle for me that uh, how important that was to them and, and kind of just saying, you know, who God is or who Jesus was, that he was God. So just, uh, I, just a comment in that, that uh, realm myself for me. All right. Thanks, Maury. Did you have thoughts on that, uh, Robert? Oh, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's absolutely correct. I, 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 th- I don't think we can quite understand how offensive that was to the audience. I, th- I think he's just perfectly right on that. Sorry, I had myself muted for a moment. Um, all right, we're caught up on questions, I believe. If anybody else would like to offer a, a point of discussion, again, just write question in the chat, and I will be happy to uh, bring you in. But we have uh, seven minutes or so to go. Um, let's see. I didn't necessarily jot down any other points of uh, interest or confusion for myself, but is, is there any part of the lesson that you thought you didn't get into with as much detail as you might have liked to? Um, yeah, I think... Uh, let me go back through it very, very quickly because it was something I was thinking of and now I forgot it. Um I remember at one point in in the lesson you said I could go into more detail about this, but in the interest of time, I won't. I can't remember exactly what you were talking about, though. I think it may have been on the on the idea of perseverance, but the would I really, you know, if I have a couple of more minutes, I I would love to talk more about this idea of the truth will set you free. Mm. Um, it, you know, one of the kind of basic Christian beliefs about about people, like if, you know, if we're facing Christian anthropology, is that we are slaves to sin, that we really have a simple nature. And so we cannot help but to sin. And we need the help of the Spirit. We need, you know, Jesus has already talked about in, in John's Gospel that if you believe in me, I will send you the Spirit. And this will become more explicit, I think, in like chapter 14 or something, but later on, at any rate. Um, and so it people uh, certainly uh, th- you know they're not as wicked as they could be uh, people can certainly uh, make decisions and and you know not everybody is a you know some murderer and a cheat and all these things um, so but that being said that being said the fact that people are not as bad as they could be still it is true under the christian view that people have an innately wicked nature and they're going to act out on that um and the way to begin to overcome that it is uh through god's help right through the spirit and this is a very central idea uh to christianity um in and it's part of the beauty of 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 the christian life right where you start seeing your shortcomings and with God's help, you become to overcome those. You become to, or you you start. Forgive me. Uh, you start to overcome those. You start to correct those. Um, so, and and I I didn't quite get into that because truly the passage today uh, wasn't so much speaking of that. It was more speaking of this idea of like being a slave versus being a son. Um, but since I had hmm. a few minutes, I wanted to add that. Well, I, I appreciate the discussion of that particular quote because I have encountered that quote, of course, but it's usually, at least if I recall, in an academic context, you see it at a lot of colleges or you hear it in like a school setting in that way. 
And in that way, at least as I've encountered it, it usually means it's like a very open-ended invitation to examine the world and uh, find your own truth, so to speak, you know? And and the way that I'm, at least, I think I'm understanding you describe it in, in its proper biblical context, I mean, that's not necess- that's not what it means at all. It's not go out and find your truth. Here is the truth. You will accept it to achieve freedom or you will reject it and suffer forever in your sin or whatever other false idol you pursue. Um, do you think that do you think that uh, the phrase has lost its original meaning or um, I don't know, am I, am I off there? Like to me, the, the phrase as I see it presented doesn't jive with the biblical presentation that you're describing. No, I, I think you're absolutely correct because I think the way the Bible presents it, it I, I'm gonna sound a little bit mystical here, um, but I think that the phrase works at two levels. On on one hand, you need the truth as in what's actually factually correct, right? Like believing just anything won't set you free. You must believe the right thing, what is what is veridical. Um, but on top of that, that Jesus describes himself as the truth, right? And then he's going to send somebody who who is going to play his role, which will be the Holy Spirit. So in the Christian narrative, this truth is not only a set of propositions. It certainly includes a set of propositions, right, about the world. It does. I'm not denying that. But it's also a sort of living truth, right, where you have this communion with God who is the source of all truth. And I think it's in that full sense, the full sense of both a correct set of propositions and a living truth uh, that together will will set you free. Hmm. Uh, I think anything short of that doesn't do the job. Mari notes in the chat, apparently the FBI uses the saying too. So how far <laughs> the wisdom has fallen, I suppose. Um, um, I, I think what the FBI believes is your confession will set you free as long yeah. as we like your confession or something. Like no that. offense to the the Fed who's listening in on this call, of course. I didn't, you know, yes. I didn't mean anything by it. Maybe we'll um, convert him. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Eric sent in one more question, but I don't know that either of us will have a great answer for it. He asked, uh, how do you raise kids to not feel like going to church is a drag? I don't have kids yet. Um, I I also don't have expertise in how to achieve that. So uh, maybe someday I'll have to confront that question. But uh, I don't I don't have kids. um, But I will say this. If your kid is a boy, uh, then make sure that you present the intellectual side of things. Now, of Mm. course, when they're five, they don't understand it. I get that. But as they start growing up, give them the intellectual side of things, or they will think that church is the lamest thing, and it's really fake, and they're going to leave it. You you know, it's wild that we'll teach a 14-year-old physics and calculus and multiple languages, but we think, oh, no, theology is too hard. It isn't. That would be my my one word of advice. Yeah, I think that's... uh why a lot of this fell out of interest for me in in my teen years it's exactly the sort of attitude i had oh we already have you know all of these amazing scientific fields that already have the world fully explained why would i have any use for this this uh kind of old outdated nonsense that's supposed to be wisdom but you know that that's kind of the attitude that i had and uh i think if someone had presented it to me in the way that you're describing i don't know that i would have been interested or not but I bet I would have been more interested than I ended up being until it took me into kind of my mid-adulthood to 
to realize that it's not a knock on science. Obviously, I, I put a lot of value in those fields of study, and I think we all should. But nobody has the answers to all of life's deepest questions, which is why many of us are here and considering these things, you know, uh, myself included. So that's uh, that's probably wise. Um, the other the other thing I think about too, like on, on that topic of how to convince people to attend church, obviously all of the uh, theological wisdom that goes along with, with that is important, but the social components of it are also crucial. I mean, we have so many people uh, on the Wednesday stream, whenever we talk about relationships or finding uh, a spouse or something like that, it's so difficult for so many younger people now because the, the ties that used to be part of a church are now largely severed. And it's not that I, you know, I'm not trying to say you should go to church for the primary purpose of that, but it, it is a nice silver lining. It is a nice benefit. All of those social connections and indeed, you know, finding your husband, finding your wife, whatever. Um, I don't know if that's a great sales pitch to a teenager, but it does matter shortly thereafter quite a lot. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's how I'll sell my son. <laughs> go find your wife there. Don't, don't waste time with other nonsense. Very biblical, actually. Yeah, yeah. I like it. <laughs> um, Eric, I do see you sent another question. I will have to I will have to uh, save that one for another time, but perhaps we can come back to it because we are out of time. But I appreciate uh, everyone's participation tonight and uh, all your questions. Of course, Robert, did you have any uh, closing thoughts? No, that was it. Thank you, everyone, for participating. All right. Well, thank you as well, Robert. Uh, and uh, and thanks for the lesson, too. I know it was a, a tough week for you, and I hope everything is is well for you. Yeah, I had a little loss in my family, but I'll tell you later about Sure. That. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Have a good night. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you back next Saturday, by the way, 8 p.m. Eastern, as usual. Thanks.